0: We we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse, the fifth column. column. Greetings, and welcome back to another exciting installment of the fifth column podcast. This is your mostly weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle, the people that make it, and occasionally ourselves. I'm Camille Foster of Freethink Media. This is uh, August 24th, 2017. It's the evening. We've got a few drinks in us, and this is episode—this is episode 60. Welch you're out of your mind, it's like 70. No, that's what I meant, episode 70, because last week
1: was episode 69. So Jesus episode Christ, 70. you come out off the plane from this is Portugal, you're in a room full of vaginas. <laughs> we going talk
0: about that, by the way? We, we'll talk about All that. All right. The, the voice that you hear is uh, one Matt Welch, editor-at-large of Reason Magazine, um, and uh, the story about the room full of vaginas, we'll have to wait for a moment. Um, our usual co-conspirator, um, that guy, Michael Moynihan... Hollywood. We we don't really know what's going on with him. It's a it's his birthday. We brought a cake. There are candles on it. We it's were going actually to his birthday. Him, we didn't actually
1: bring a sheet cake.
0: Well, I would have, except I knew that there was a fifty-seven percent likelihood that he wouldn't be here.
1: We know that he's gonna listen to this. So, Michael, we just want to tell you that we're your real family, okay? Yeah. Come home. Come home. We love you. Yeah. Um,
0: but yeah, he's not he's not here, and hopefully he will will show up, but we don't know. We can't be sure. Um, we do have some other folks here, however. Uh Dan Beer, our producer, kid, um, is in New York for meetings. He's actually not doing any work this kid. week. You, he's, you're he's listening and doesn't have a microphone. You mentioned before me. we
1: started that she didn't want to say certain things to Dan Beer because she didn't want to get sued because you're kind of his employer. Um Kid. Uh-huh kid is fine Uh,
0: is it it's technically accurate he's better
1: than boy he's younger than
0: me that's true well no boy is fine you're you're not allowed to say that to me um that voice that you hear (laughs) is not is not darth (laughs) vader Uh, (laughs) that is that is our guest is a second time guest freelance journalist jeremy siegel Jeremy, I mean Jacob.
1: <laughs> Jacob what is wrong with you, Jacob
0: Siegel? I'm leaving. There's a J. What's great is that he paused hey, there for three seconds. He's like, I can do
1: this. I'm gonna get it. But yeah, there's a J. Contact what I'm gonna me. do is
0: edit all this out. No, no that wasn't not. eye contact with you. I was, I was trying to trying to remember. That's all right. Come but on. that's that's because it's not the worst thing I've all been good. called. Not not this week. um and most, most days there's a coon and an uncle Tom in there. Oh. Uh, and of course our, our good friend, Anthony Fisher Not for
2: me, I'd uh, like to say,
0: well, occasionally. Not, yet, not, yet. not yet, not yet. <laughs> yeah. The night is still the night young. Is young.
2: I just want to our- say that this is the best show ever. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Anthony Fisher. Uh, Anthony Fisher is here. Uh, he's going to help to try to keep the wheels on, but I've got to tell you folks, I'm, I just got back from a vacation, um, a vacation that I I wasn't really planning to take. I took while I had way too much going on, but I went to Portugal. Um, and it was, it was fabulous. It was beautiful. It was a nice, nice, nice place to visit. You fly into Lisbon, you go a little further North for an hour or so. There was an earthquake apparently while I was there. I didn't feel it. Um, but it's beautiful. It's nice. It's nice and warm A lot of people go to Lisbon instead of the Caribbean now um, or some of the other more expensive places in Europe because of Zika in the Caribbean, which is a bit of a a nightmare disease, especially if you're going on a baby moon.
1: Okay. Which, first of all, like is it enough people going on a
2: baby moon that this is going to like
1: register? Thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. My no, wife it's a totally would a thing.
2: Not let us go south of the border yeah, because yeah. of Zika. But no, a the, right. Zika, but did Lisbon you have a baby is, moon? Because we're in a general window of baby possibility. There was no trip south of the border because yeah. of Zika.
0: Dude, this huh? is a thing. Huh? Lisbon has seen a, a measurable bump in tourism, both as a consequence of terrorist attacks in Europe. And we, we had one of those this week, actually. Um, And because of Zika, they are reaping all of the benefits of all of these tragedies, which leads one to believe one obvious, clear truth that the Portuguese, those dreadful bastards are responsible for both Zika and Islamic terrorism. That's a pretty good theory. See, See how I did that? This yeah. is exactly like Infowars. This is the same yeah. damn thing.
2: Yeah, um, There'd be Jewish actors involved. This was <laughs> exactly like there, Infowars. There always are, um, but but
0: no, we we did have a good time. I, I did stay in a room at a hotel, and I, I don't I don't want to name the hotel, but we we booked this really great hotel. My wife did, anyways, um, and we're staying in this luxurious suite. Um, at least it's supposed to be luxurious. When we get there, uh, we discover that the room it is painted like this black and red color scheme and the drapes and most of the furniture are covered with illustrations of vaginas and images of women models walking the runway wearing clothing that are covered in vaginas. Mm There's a whole vagina theme. In fact, there's also a mannequin that is Inside of the wall, hmm. sort of the Star Wars uh, thing where Han Solo is, like, stuck in sure. the in No, the, yeah, you sent, me, the you sent me
1: that photo uh, it is, Camille, of, of Tracy next to it. It's, it's terrifying. It's totally terrifying. Absolutely. It's, 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 like,
0: overlooking, it's hear, overlooking the bed. I just Harrison think that Ford's when you look
2: at... Uh, when you book a room in the Vagina Hotel, well, you know, we
0: didn't know. You can't <laughs> complain. They don't tell you that it's the Vagina Hotel. They yeah. don't tell you that. But these, I mean, you see that, like uh, that's a vagina. I, wow. That's
2: wild. Yeah, yeah,
0: that's a vagina. This is a.
2: There's <laughs> a, Definitely.
0: This is a framed picture right. of, vagi- of a vagina so, hanging like over a the velvet bed. Velvet painting. So, and there uh, is my wife. She's gorgeous, standing next to this mannequin emerging from the wall. Sure. It is ridiculous.
1: Uh, um, now, so uh, let's let's just kind of work our way through this. Uh huh. Tracy books this. Uh-huh. It's her choice, her baby moon. <laughs> Um, and suddenly Camille is in a room full of vaginas. (laughs) Do you think that this is all accidental?
0: Is it it a sign? No, she she was unhappy. Uh, my wife was very, very unhappy. We we changed rooms the next day and the cockroom. All all was well. No. (laughs) Well, if I'm in fifty-seven rooms. Any room that I'm in (laughs) Facebook (laughs) gender. Any room that I'm in is the cockroom. Oh my god. Um, Yeah.
1: We're like a minute 10 Yeah, he's yeah,
0: swinging, swinging heavy. Um, but but um, there there was also news while I was away. Um, I I was paying some attention to what was happening. Uh, there was a solar eclipse. It was apparently very exciting. The president, proving his manliness, decided to look up at the solar eclipse with no glasses on because your guidance about his need for protection not very important to him. Um, Steve Bannon apparently fired back at Breitbart which is also very exciting. Um, There were 15,000 people that were in the streets of Boston, uh, a carryover from the uh, tragic events that took place at Charlottesville. That situation in a way is still ongoing. At least the conversation about Charlottesville has not stopped. The president was talking about this just yesterday as he gave a speech in Arizona, um, which was ostensibly just these This endless campaign rallies that the president continues to have. Um, There were protests there as well um, outside of that event. Um, The president rehashing the remarks that he made post Charlottesville. Um, And in addition to all of that, uh, the president has reversed himself on Afghanistan and is apparently planning to do something. But as he promised. He won't tell us what it is because he doesn't want the terrorists to know what his plan is. But what he does tell us is that he needs our confidence and our trust, needs the trust of the American people. He plans to do the right thing. He knows that he's reversing course on 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 this. He's reversing his own perspective, but it's because he's thought about this so much and he knows that it's what we need to do. So- there are all of those things for us to talk about, plus some stuff about statues that are being ripped down. I heard about
2: that? Um, yeah. Hey, just on Boston, I think it was probably closer to twenty five thousand. I was in Boston. Closer to twenty five thousand. Yeah. Some okay. Some figures are as high forty, which I think is too high. Is that right? Are we up 25 to twenty five? Is she? Uh, this is a made, to the main. Well, let's let's start there. Yeah.
0: yeah. So so Jacob, you went up. Um, what what? brought you to Boston.
2: Well, I'd actually gone to Boston in May when the same group of teenagers had organized their first free speech rally.
1: So let's just, I'm going to cross-examine you here because I had not heard any reporting. I didn't read that closely, but I saw a lot of chatter about it that actually talked about the original protesters and the people who started the rally themselves as opposed to the kind of reaction rally to it. So Explain those people who they are and who they were the second time around. This is
2: actually really, really fascinating because um, it was a group of teenagers and the main organizer, or one of the main organizers, which I, was actually a 17 year old. Jesus. Um, and they had organized this on a, a message board, basically, not a message board, but a, I don't even know what, what you'd call it at this point, called Discord. That was originally a place for gamers to talk to each other while they play video games. And that had been. Sort of the main organizing hub, so you'd had this group of basically four chan teenagers who um if you were going to label them politically, you'd probably call something like libertarian constitutionalists you know if that could be said about a seventeen year old <laughs> it would be somewhere. In that ballpark. Uh Additionally, there was a guy in May involved named John Rasmussen, who's another interesting character, because uh, in what's something of a pattern in some of these um, alt-light protests, let's call them, he'd actually gotten his start in politics at Occupy Wall Street, in his case in Maine. So you had this group of teenagers, um, this guy, John Rasmussen. And to boil this down, what they had done was this. And again, this is May. This is in May. Yeah. uh, But this is largely the same group of people. So the Rasmussen dropped out before this um, recent rally. uh, But the teenagers were still there. And what they had done effectively was organized an anti-Antifa rally. So if you look at my article that I wrote for the Daily Beast in May, uh, headline is something like teens bring 4chan to Boston. They're quite explicit about the fact that their main PR push, their main recruitment rhetoric is all centered around Skirmishing with antifa resisting antifa for anyone who's listening who's not aware at this point antifa is uh short for anti fascist and refers to basically both at this point there's some semantic ambiguity here both refers to a broad coalition of people involved in ostensibly anti fascist politics and militant anarchists. And these guys in May, who were more alt-light, you would say, they were not neo-Nazis. They were more uh, what you'd call alt-light, had organized this rally um, really as a, hey, let's go fight in the streets with Antifa, as let's gather in these two antagonistic social groupings Mm -hmm. Right. Not connected to larger political parties and let's fight in the streets. And the fighting was explicit as like a totally, totally explicit. Okay. Um, And what they did was basically tamp down the rhetoric the closer they got to the event in May. So it had originally been, you know, not quite in instigating violence, but. Going right up to the edge, and then as they started to get more media attention, they started to tamp it down. And the list of speakers who they brought out in May uh, was a sort of mix of uh, people like Kyle Chapman, who's uh, you know got multiple felony counts at this point, is known as "Based Stick Man." Oh yeah, yeah. and is this guy who you know basically kind of flirts with uh, white identitarian rhetoric, um, a mix of people like him, and then also um, Oathkeeper. To Type uh, militia members who are explicitly, they explicitly reject racial politics.
0: We've gotten into a lot of detail here, but I think an important point should be underscored. The group that hosted an event in Charlottesville, or at least the constellation of groups that were represented in Charlottesville, are those the same people that were leading this event, no, that were not. organizing this no. event in Boston, which I think is an important point.
2: Yeah, it's a very important the point. The
0: reason why protesters were out in force was because the the dominant narrative was that this was another white nationalist alt-right rally, that, yeah, these, that there are right. Nazis in the street and we are going to come out in force and we're going to show them that- Hate loses.
2: I don't want to get too deep in the weeds, but there's a certain level of detail that's important here because there's been so much misinformation about what actually happened. So the the point of that background is to say two things. The two main takeaways are that the purpose of the original rally in May Mm -hmm. in Boston. Yeah. Okay. Months before Charlottesville, held by the same people. Not was was held by the same people? Not as Charlottesville, held as the same people who held the more more recent rally in Boston. Yes. That the purpose of that rally uh was both as a kind of big tent gathering of the right. So they, these organizers in Boston explicitly did not disavow white nationalists, racists, the alt right, because they wanted a uh, kind of free speech absolutism on the one hand. And on the other hand, they wanted to draw people out to fight with Antifa, which was what they were advertising. Mm -hmm. Right. So in May, they explicitly didn't try and ideologically, uh, have a diverse ideological uh, speaker list like they did this time. So flash forward to what happened in Charlottesville, and I think probably most people are aware of the violence in Charlottesville. In Charlottesville, uh, leaving aside the question of Confederate statues for a second, that was a neo-Nazi, alt-right, white nationalist gathering. A woman was killed by a alt-right, neo-Nazi militant. Right. Um, And then after the violence in Charlottesville, after President Trump's, I think, inexcusable response to Charlottesville, Mm. you have this massive turnout in Boston. All right. And let's say it's twenty five thousand people. And I know because I listened to part of the last show, I know you you don't feel the same way I do about the president's response. But the, it's important the, to see that, that that's as brought is Camille, people out. Not, not me, right? yeah. That's why many of these well, people were yes. out in Boston. Yeah. They weren't just out because of the violence in Charlottesville. My sense from being on the ground in Boston is that they were also out because they felt like in the absence of a kind of official condemnation from the top, the onus had now... Moved down to them in a sense that they had to say, we're not on that side. Right. No. And I, I
0: think that's, I think that's fair. And it, I think it's certainly true that there is a, a, a prevailing perspective about the president's comments, um, a prevailing perspective that is uh, subscribed to by pretty much everyone who is a working journal who covers this stuff. It is pretty common to read that the president, essentially still hasn't um, been willing to condemn those organizations or groups. Um, and it's certainly the case that a lot of people seem to believe that the president has never condemned those organizations or groups. I think that the really short version of this, from my standpoint, is in order to make that claim, uh, one has to set aside most of what the president has said post Charlottesville, even in his immediate Response to the tragedy, and one has to focus narrowly on the the many sides, both sides um, aspect of what the president said, and one has to interpret that in a in a pretty specific way. That he's creating uh, a, a moral equivalence. Um, it's it's one of those situations where I think in a normal conversation with a normal person, like we tend to be very generous with one another when Barack Obama, um, retweeted or tweeted uh, quotes from Nelson Mandela in the immediate aftermath of Charlottesville. Um, He didn't mention neo-Nazis, but no one suspects that Barack Obama is a neo-Nazi sympathizer because he didn't mention them by name. The specific charge in that particular context appeared to be that the president was um, both not mentioning these organizations and saying that many sides, many sides, this includes, this is not about Donald Trump. It's not about Barack Obama. Um, that somehow in doing that, he was signaling some sort of uh, some sort of dog whistle rather than just being inarticulate, inelegant Donald Trump.
2: The point that I'm trying to make about Boston has less to do with um you know, how you want to interpret the president's comments inside this room and more with what they, uh, what they kind of catalyzed, what they sparked among people in Boston. And
1: including now let's, let's go back to your narrative yeah. here, including the organizers. So the organizers between their May rally, which is like, come mm-hmm. one, come all, we're fighting Antifa.
2: Suddenly post Charlottesville, they're like, um, precisely. So what happened? Well, let's post- get Black lives matter people here. Precisely. Let's okay. get, let's get some people to talk about, uh, the BDS movement. Uh, boycott divest okay. sanctions uh targeted at Israel now um,
1: are we still talking about the organizers themselves are like 17 year olds or like uh 19 yeah, some year olds? Of the
2: central organizers are 17 okay because we've like heard nothing 17 about 17 year olds who came off of 4chan and who were you know to say that this was play acting isn't fair but it's also not inaccurate right it's not fair because it suggests that it was entirely frivolous one of the chants in May from the you know left-wing, Antifa side, let's call them, was go back to 4chan. That was a huh. literal rant or a literal chant, okay, by hundreds of people. Now, for some perspective, in May, and uh, I would encourage people to read the article I wrote about this because I think it'll provide some context. Um, it's for the Daily Beast. Uh, teens bring 4chan politics to Boston. There was roughly the same number of people on each side. They were chanting back and forth. Um, Flat, you know, go forward to, to the rally last week and the counter protest. And all of a sudden, instead of what 450 people on the counter protest side, the anti alt light side, let's call it, there are now 25,000 people. Why did those people come out? They came out, um, For two reasons. Primarily, I think one is that they had gotten in their head that there were going to be Nazis in Boston, which wasn't true, by the way, as even the Anti-Defamation League uh, attested. These were not Nazis. Now, just to interject and sorry for it, but this is fascinating to me. Were you in that gazebo? Like, no, not this time. I wasn't. I couldn't get into that. Yeah, right. No, one too many. So that was one of the cops. Cops were separating, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. by the way, which. (coughs) <coughs> we can get into this more yeah. later. The Boston police did a very good job, I thought. And as I was tweeting from the event that day, there would have been more violence. It would have gotten worse had they not handled it as well as they did. I think that's actually a very important part of the story because I think that uh, local government and local police force has the critical role to play in these events. And I think in terms of balancing the right to free assembly and the right to free expression with the need to maintain public order and, and, maintained safety, they did a very good job. And that leads me to my next point, which is this narrative that has emerged post-Boston of everybody needing to have an opinion on whether Antifa is the saviors of the world or whether they're you know, Stalin reincarnated is preposterous if you Actually, consider the impact that they had in Boston, um, which was disproportionate to their size, right? Because out of 25,000 people, I would say not more than 500 were Antifa. But like any militant group, 500 in a large crowd can galvanize that crowd, can Mm -hmm. kind of spur violence. So they had a disproportionate impact. But if you're just looking at what brought people out and what ideas they were organized around, okay, it wasn't Antifa. And this is another, in my opinion, phony culture war frame, another bullshit frame. And I told myself I wasn't going to curse on the show, but I get we worked up about this. We don't frown on that. <laughs> but this idea <laughs> that fucking Antifa— your fucking self. Well, I just— This idea that Antifa is like the issue that we all need to to organize ourselves around. Take a step back, because what I just told you is there weren't any Nazis in Boston, right? There might have been five, okay, and there were twenty five thousand people in the streets. So, in what sense is the anti Nazi organization, the self proclaimed anti Nazi organization, the story, right? If there were only five Nazis in Boston that day and the rest of these people, you might find their politics despicable, but they aren't in any sense Nazi, right? But how much, so how much, uh, I mean, you can, Antifa could
1: be the story if there's zero Nazis there, if Antifa went there and started punching people and acting like
2: assholes. So the majority of, that's a fair point, the majority of violence I saw in Boston And what I gathered from talking to other people actually wasn't directed by Antifa. The majority of violence I saw was uh, people in the crowd who were worked up because they had arrived Uh with the idea that they were there to fight Nazis and and needed to then kind of exercise that level of moral outrage. And it was them grouping around, uh, people who became heretics for whatever reason. And, you know, uh, it, it was disconcerting to say the least. Some of these people that they grouped around, you might see the videos of like hundreds of people shouting shame and get out. Some of them were Trump supporters and MAGA hats, mm-hmm. who you might, called provocateurs uh, you know if you wanted to to frame it in that way but certainly people who were looking to instigate a reaction uh but uh, who wait but just by wearing a MAGA I, hat is instigating a reaction yeah. I think we're in not a MAGA, like wearing a MAGA hat in that crowd uh, to, uh look I, dude, you gotta you know, be able to wear a MAGA hat in any crowd yeah you're, you're taking me wrong though I'm not saying no, I, I'm, I'm yeah. just teasing out the idea here they should 100 percent have the right to wear a MAGA hat, uh, and they should have a right to wear a MAGA hat uh, without the threat of violence, um, but in a crowd of 25,000 people that's out to, to beat up Nazis or to chase Nazis out of their city you know, anything that sort of rhymes with the the kind of um, evil that they expect to see is going to be targeted. And if you look at some of the coverage from that day, people who were deemed heretics for whatever reason were targeted. And the other people who were targeted were people with American flags. Some of that was Antifa. Antifa was responsible sure. for some of the violence there. The very first thing I saw when I got there, five minutes after I got there, was a older woman, probably in her mid-60s who had held was holding a big American flag up leading an anti-Trump chant and a line of Antifa people walked past her kind of black block anarchists all black get-ups and one of them grabbed the flag Okay, started running to yank it out of her hand and dragged her to the ground. And she was then crying. And there was then, you know, a kind of uh, back and forth scuffle. So the very first thing I saw, the very first kind of notable incident I saw when I got to Boston was an old woman dragged to the ground for the offensive, um, waving an American flag. And that. That dynamic, though, not quite as uh, disgusting as that with an old woman getting dragged to the ground was something I saw throughout the day, you know. People with American flags being singled out, um, if not for that kind of physical confrontation, then certainly for verbal abuse. I think that's a a, a, a kind of a
1: a remarkable demonstration of the Nazi punching problem. Right. Which is to say we can use which is the Antifa thing, but that spread over a a larger mark. Uh, portion of the left and in progressive uh, discourse on Twitter and elsewhere, referencing obviously Richard Spencer getting punched after, uh, during the inauguration when he was talking to someone on camera. And it's like, hey, you know, let's, here's the Captain America cartoon of him like punching a Nazi from something like that. Well, the problem always is, and we've talked about this on the show, is like who gets to decide who's who's a Nazi? And if Antifa's going out there and saying that granny anti Trump uh, is a bad person because she's waving an American flag in the Middle of her discourse that's the exact problem Right Um, uh, and uh, And I think that should be a real Cautionary tale as we go forward here uh, In these kind of protests Particularly in I feel like there's a lot of shadow boxing that's, that's being set up and and going on. I mean, the way that it was commonly portrayed this rally in general was Charlottesville 2.0 this time the Nazis got outnumbered. That's not what happened. That's what you're telling and me here like no, what you're but, that's about, not,
0: but that's not Antifa that was portraying it that way. No, 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 no the major, media
1: yeah, major media That's what I'm outlets, talking about. Major, major
0: media, media outlets media. had numerous headlines about <laughs> yeah, white yeah, supremacists rally. Um, I'm looking at a think progress headline right now. about about the white supremacist rally in Boston, which that was never a thing. Um, but I haven't, I haven't seen much of an effort on the part of the pundits who covered this to straighten out that particular account of events. Information cascade. There is a broad belief that what was taking place there was, in fact, a neo-Nazi white supremacist rally that has reached fact status.
1: Trump, we had original documents and and we had original video to look at. People just interpreted it differently. What are we,
0: I'm sorry, what are we talking about with the Trump thing?
1: Uh, I mean, you you are applying the same phrase that you used earlier, information cascade, uh-huh. to explain why all of us, uh, you know, uh, lemmings uh, have a negative interpretation <laughs> of. Uh, of Trump here Well you give Trump The benefit of the doubt But no, not no. the people Who criticize no, him no, this is, The benefit of the doubt But, no, I, but I'm is, saying that The the, the yeah. raw materials Were there And what I found frustrating uh-huh. And I didn't You know I didn't yeah. Dig that deep into it But I w- was consuming Twitter and looking at stuff And, and I was very thankful uh, uh, Which uh, uh, Johnny With an H Johnny Yeah um, G-I Johnny um, uh, I was very uh, thankful To uh, have your Twitter account Actually there Because not only Were you uh, Reporting stuff But you are taking Nice pictures I thought those uh, Those very good. Um, but like, I kept starting to ask myself, like, has anyone talking about the original protest?
2: Yeah. I mean, you just Uh, couldn't get to them was the thing, right? They were so cordoned off, which again, um, like I'm not really complaining about, um, because I think there would have been more violence if they hadn't been. And so the, the idea that the police cordoned them off didn't strike me as a unacceptable, um abridgment of free speech it struck me as a reasonable compromise with reality the final point i'd make about the kind of antifa nazi punching um and who these kids were and all that was look i, I think that uh, as i've said several times here they weren't nazis um right however you know they painted themselves into a corner by the way they set things up in may right. so prior to charlottesville okay they weren't looking to disavow the far right. They were explicitly saying, we welcome anybody here, come one, come all. Um, It's a good thing, post-Charlottesville, that people are, are now starting to distance themselves, that this kind of factional uh, schism is occurring. That's a good thing. Okay. The alt-right should be isolated. It doesn't mean everybody who splits off from them is, uh, you know, pure and and without uh, reproach, but it's a good thing that that's happening, I think. The other point to make with Antifa is, Matt, you're right, that, uh, you know, if they were kind of coordinating and instigating the violence then they would be significant whether or not there were actual Nazis present. But just to quickly set up what happened in Boston so that people listening understand – Where I was was in the park. All right, it's the oldest national park in America, the Boston Common. Okay, that's where the uh, free speech rally was. Okay, the right wing free speech rally, libertarian free speech rally, was in a small gazebo there. When I got there, there were already probably something like seven to ten thousand people in the park, I would guess. In addition to the people, now I say seven to ten thousand people. I'm talking about counter protesters, and there were a whole number of different organizations who'd come out as counter protesters, religious organizations, socialist organizations, uh, some unions, um, in addition to people who are just regular people in Boston who felt like, hey, I want to go out and and oppose Nazis in my city. In addition to the people in the park, there was also a march that marched to the park that had even more people that was organized by mainly socialist organizations and Black Lives Matter groups in Boston. By the time that march got to the Boston Common, where they were supposed to then link up with the other counter protesters, right when that happened, the police shut the whole thing down. They escorted the I should say I shouldn't say escorted, they evacuated, okay, the free speech rally guys in uh in paddy wagons. Okay. They were trucked out, um, with mobs chanting, make them walk. Um, wow. I say mobs, uh, you know, at that point the crowds mobs. were mobs, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. They, they weren't crowds when they were chanting that sort of thing. They had turned into mobs. So there was a a very large, multifaceted counter-protest. Within that large, multifaceted counter-protest, Antifa, from what I saw, was a disproportionate part because of their ability to kind of galvanize the crowd, but not anywhere close to the story of the day. And most of the scenes of direct confrontation that you saw with riot cops squaring off with people happened After that all ended, okay, those scenes you saw with lines of riot cops in gas masks squaring off with rioters were after, like, the normal people had gone home. So were they squaring off with Antifa at that point, or who? Antifa and... People who just wanted to brawl, who were pissed off at the cops. At that point, look, uh, people from Southie is what I'm hearing. Not just people from Southie, people from all over, but people who, um, people who felt like this was their opportunity to get at the cops, and and who. In a, in a rally organized around the idea that we're going to go after our enemies, um, their enemies were the cops at that point, and that's who they wanted to go after. And, you know, that's what I saw. And uh, so I didn't see that story, which was what I saw reflected in most of the news coverage. And I know I've gone on for a while, but I wanted to put it out now because I think it's important to understand what actually happened. I think it's uh,
1: it's a a preview of what might happen, depending on what the overall kind of counter reaction is, we were talking about this in various slack channels at uh, at reason, and Jesse Walker, our books editor there who we were talking about before we hit record uh, on the mic here, uh, is always there to point out like after Charlottesville, everyone assumed. OK, this is just going to escalate these street fights. That's it. It's on. We're, we're going. We're doing this thing. And he has pointed out without any kind of definitive prediction kind of things like don't be so sure. There's going to be a lot of people who are going to retrench and recoil from this. There's a pretty interesting article from Brian Feldman, who I interviewed last week on uh, Sirius XM. And uh, shout out to our POTUS uh, listeners out there um, in New York Magazine talking about uh, Charlottesville. And the headline on the piece was something like, The End of the Ironic Nazi, right? Um, which is similar to your 4chan type of thing, right? It, it is this, these are people who flirted with these ideas and this kind of like, uh, uh, we're going to scare people or we're going to outrage people because it's fun. It's like we're going to troll people using these, uh, these, uh, these, uh Outra type of uh, of uh, Imagery and associations And then they all showed up In, in meat space And saw what happened and then there was Also a killing or you know A, a death that happened because of Aggressive action in Charlottesville And a bunch of people might have gotten freaking, Freaked out uh, by that process
2: That idea right I, I read Feldman's Piece yeah. uh, I'm sure he's a smart guy I thought he was Wrong in in every Sense Wow, but not uh, not unique in the way that he was wrong okay but, but profoundly profoundly mistaken he's if you, you can't you guys can 't see uh, uh, Jeremy Siegel here uh, but he's he 's shaking with
1: uh, with fury go on I was he, shaking
2: what? because back in 2015. Um, Before, And I think I mentioned this the last time I was on. But back in 2015, before people were talking about the alt-right, I wrote a story um, saying this whole idea of trolling is a con. Um, Don't fall for it. People who gather day after day to espouse fascist neo-Nazi beliefs are... You should take them as fascists and neo-Nazis. And I think that there's a profound failure of political and moral imagination that went into inflating this idea of ironic Nazis and ironic trolling. And what it betrays is a kind of bourgeois, liberal inability. You know, I say this as a guy who's like a reluctant liberal, but an, an inability to deal with the very powerful, irrational currents in the world, there were never... Ironic Nazis. I mean, that's an absurd statement. There were never,
0: there were never ironic Nazis that, that, that to me actually seems like an absurd sweeping claim. Like none of the children who were attending these rallies who were, who were, uh, taken with Richard Spencer, who describes what he's doing when he says Like hail trump as trolling None of them actually believe that
2: Well then they weren't you know if they don't believe it Then they weren't nazis look so Here's it, my is, fundamental but this point is,
0: but that's But that's the point yeah, like, that that that's the what point. we mean when we Say I mean, what an
2: ironic nazi right. is but point. It's, it's from, I don't care it's from, what they believe yes it, I don't have a magnifying glass but, or a
1: telescope To see into their soul I, I think it's Important I agree with you on the sense of Condemnation but I also Agree with the idea of trying to Portray their own journey in this And so I think what Feldman was trying to do in the New York Magazine piece was like there are people Who their journey was We're being online trolls and Then their destination was to Be I'm a tiki torch asshole over uh-huh. here. Uh, I don't. I. What's the, okay. the quote of the guy? I'm not. I'm not the racist that everyone saw.
2: No. Sure, that's a guy who got scared out. You yeah. know, scared by the consequences of his actions. Right. My point is, I, I'm being strident and maybe a bit overstated here. But that's again, okay. so I'm here to back in back in, in <laughs> 2015, before the alt right was something that people were concerned about or knew about, I was writing about the way in which there was this attempt to divide everybody into two camps where either you were a social justice warrior or you were a fascist and you had to choose one side or the other. And I was also recognizing the way in which this idea of trolling was a, a kind of black hole that that sucked in truth and made it uh, impossible to, to, to keep perspective. And what I mean by that is, Not that everybody who used racist rhetoric online aspired to be an actual Nazi. Uh, What I mean is this idea that online gestures and online activities or this entirely detached social space that had no consequences in the real world was never true and that people who were trying out these identities online were trying them out because there was something appealing about those identities and the inability to look at that honestly to me was a kind of collapse of moral imagination. It was an inability to look what, at the world honestly.
0: Well, When you say look at it honestly, though, I think what you what you're what you're actually saying, it sounds like to me, because it seems like you acknowledge that there are some there's some percentage of that population that was, in fact, flirting with ideas or perhaps just saying things to get a rise out of people. But that one has to also accept that there's some percentage of this same population. And I'm not saying whether it's 20 percent or 80 percent, but some percentage of that population who's not just flirting with these ideas in the real world, there could be people who are actual avowed fascists, actual neo-Nazis. It's fair to acknowledge that that sort of evil could exist in the world. I also think it's totally reasonable not To work oneself up into so much of a lather that you come to believe that essentially anyone wearing a MAGA hat, and I know you're not suggesting this, that anyone wearing a MAGA hat is effectively that person, which seems to be the place that we are, that we have arrived at. And, and quite frankly, it's not, we didn't just get there because of Boston. We were there from the, almost the moment Trump won the election before, um, before that you're, you're you, right. You like pretty jumped. much anyone who, who was a Trump supporter was necessarily racist. Donald Trump was in fact the, the racist whisperer sure. using dog whistles. And I think, I think that's, that's the danger of, of getting, I, I don't know. I've, I've done two things. One, I, I tried to, to restate the position that you are taking, and I'd, I'd love for you to respond to that. And then, two, you can respond to the other
2: uh, thread that I opened. I up I think you jumped over a chasm because the second part of what you're saying, I, like doing I agree with entirely. Okay. Right? which is fucking hops. This, this, <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. Right. that's racist. Ups, ups. Yeah. I think uh-huh. is <laughs> the East Coast word for that. But Dude, uh, you know I'm old,
1: so like I got ladies lingo. Hops is fine. I'll, I'll accept both of those.
2: That's yeah. the uh, what's his name? Who's the the uh, guy from White Men Can't Jump, Woody Harrelson. Woody Harrelson. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, look the the conflation of Trump supporters with Nazis. I, I agree with you on it entirely, and mm-hmm. I, I think that was a cynical political move, and uh, I think a lot of that was driven by um, like the way that Hillary supporters were. Kind of went insane based on their abominable political failures, like their total inability to appeal to people in an election and and also uh, you know a kind of disdain that had had been building for some time among certain parts of this country um, for people they disagreed with. so it was easy to say Trump supporters are Nazis. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not saying people who wore MAGA hats are Nazis. What I'm I'm saying is people who espoused Nazi rhetoric, were they real Nazis? I don't know what a real Nazi is. And I'm not suggesting that the people who said these things online should have been arrested or, or lined up against the wall. All I'm saying is that the refusal to treat people according to the way that they acted themselves reflected a a false sense of how human identity works. And it reflected a a false sense of this sort of determinacy that, that, that either you're a Nazi or you're not a Nazi. I think that if you indulge people and if you allow them to act in these vile and dehumanizing ways and you... And look, it wasn't just that they were sort of indulged. There were academics, there were journalists who were treating these people in full view of their fascist dehumanizing rhetoric, treating people like weave as if they were, you know, sort of... uh, revolutionaries of sorts, these sort of radical tricksters. And, and, uh, there was this whole kind of, um, you know, mythos that developed around them. Um, that's one extreme, but for most of it, it wasn't that they were being lionized. It's just that, When they did interact with the real world, the real world preferred to, you know, social norms were supposed to be suspended when it came to um, the way these people conducted themselves. And insofar as that became a kind of normative behavior. It encouraged them and they went farther and farther and it allowed this thing to develop not just a momentum in terms of size, because it was never going to be a mass movement. You're never going to have a a mass populist Nazi movement in America, but it allowed it to develop a kind of critical core. And when I hear like the this is the end of ironic like this is the end of them, uh, it wasn't the end of them when they were acting as ironic actually, you know, influential agents of sorts in the election, that, that wasn't well, the
0: end? Isn't, isn't that part of the question here, both in terms of the scale and actual significance of their activity when they're creating memes that are incredibly offensive, that some of these memes catch fire, especially when the president will... Um, inadvertently, intentionally knowingly retweet uh, something that's created uh, by someone uh, from from that particular faction what can we say about how influential they are and whether or not one is actually scoring points and and gaining momentum that could be translated into political power as can a I, consequence of their activity
1: I, I won't directly answer that question or like like judge that because it's a really hard question to, to judge yeah but I will I will like uh, add more kerosene on it, because um, I've been thinking about this a lot recently in a lot of different contexts, uh, which is to say, and we talked about this on the show I don't know, about six months ago, maybe right after the inauguration, there was the Richard Spencer mm-hmm. kind of uh, deplorable uh mm-hmm. there uh in Washington, DC. Uh not just the deplorable, but I and think that, was that,
0: that wasn't even his event. There was the Richard Spencer the meeting where he had like two hundred odd kids in a room and they and were like saying Pile Trump, pile victory. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there were a ton of journalists like, and like, more tequila. protesters tequila. outside. Yeah. yeah.
1: Right. And and what we talked about then was like, hey, this is an oh, I, I'm simplifying uh-huh. what is three people who disagree with each other all the time. <laughs> uh, but that uh, it was kind of an overreaction of the of, of a media that found itself so surprised after Trump won, thinking that, hey, look, we were ignoring a lot of stuff that we should pay more attention to now. And so they were overcorrecting for that. But I've been thinking about this in terms of. uh Uh, Even something as at this point kind of uh, dated as the birther controversy, because this Mm -hmm. had some aspect to what we were doing at Reason, right? At that moment, Dave Weigel, who has got a a piece that just came out while we were talking that maybe we will uh, reference later, that's called Libertarians Wrestle with the Alt-Right. Dave Weigel, Washington Post, great guy, uh, uh, friend. Uh, in 2008, he was really interested in birthers. Back then, they were as affiliated with Hillary Clinton, you know, um, uh, for the most part. People who were questioning Barack Obama's uh, actual qualifications to be president. Right, and you're you're not
0: suggesting that Hillary Clinton started birtherism, as I've heard uh-huh. uh, Donald Trump effectively do uh, at points in the past, but but just saying that there were some.
1: People? I think there were those. Uh, the term of art was Pumas. There were Pumas around Hillary Clinton. And they were talking about that back yeah. then. And Weigel was always in it has always been interested in, in, in uh, I think, a healthy way of kind of weird like offshoots of political expression and discussion in this country. And reason is a small staff, was smaller in 2008 and 2009 than it is now. And Weigel was kind of our lead political reporter. And he just kept wanting to go back after Obama got elected and inaugurated, and this is in the era of – You know, the bailout, the crisis, the American reinvestment and fuck you act, whatever. All this stuff is happening at the same time. And Weigel, our point man, is like he wants to keep going on uh, on birth certificates and birthers and things. And my reaction at the time was like, dude, we need you over here. There's like (laughs) there's some there's some good stories to be to be, uh, to be written about here. And it was it was an actual conflict. It was a conflict that contributed to us parting of the ways amicably. Um, And then, you know, it's 2016. A birther won the presidency. The guy who decided in 2011 that he's going to own the birther issue ends up becoming the president. So this question that we've wrestled with before, Mm -hmm. and we talked with you when you were here on, um, previously, um, uh, 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 Jackson, um, uh, (laughs) (laughs) and which we talked about uh, in other episodes in, in terms of like, how do you deal with, how do you, process what is eventually or ultimately a pretty small group of actual nazi shitheads or neo Nazis. they're not even nazis they're neo nazis they're wannabes uh shitheads in this country um it's not it's not easy to like work your brain through that right like um i feel like we should not have spent a lot of time on birthers and that's how we acted back then but then There is something in that birtherness that um, ended up, Kind of fertilizing a presidency, and there's, and you know, so I, I think that's right. And the, I mean, sh- the Charlottesville a why thing Trump
2: paid so much attention to it. I
1: mean, the Charlottesville thing puts a puts a, a a body bag into it, which always Focused the attention, uh-huh. but it doesn't always focus the attention in the same way. And let's let's be clear about this. There's a body bag and some many other potential body bags of people on a congressional baseball field two months ago, and like people. Spent three days obsessing True. About that uh-huh. and then just kind of lost the Plot
2: what were the the two cops who just so. got shot yeah, yeah yeah and Kissimmee yeah yeah Kissimmee. This, this
1: happens a lot it's it's very disproportionate And and the, the kind of media Climate which I think Donald Trump Is a buffoon about About uh going against you know When he's lying in his Phoenix Rally as he did saying oh look they're turning off their Cameras they never show the crowd size all that It's just lies it's, yeah. it's clumsy yeah. it's Wrong when he's blaming the media As Camille might might do uh for or uh, Jonah Goldberg's misapprehension of uh, Charlottesville <laughs> reactions, um,
0: but it's not, a, it's not a misapprehension. It's an it's an interpretation. It's a, yeah, yeah,
1: whatever. Yeah. Um, but like, uh, it's it, none of that stuff is true. But the broader critique has a bunch of truth in, to it, which is that shit tilts. It tilts heavily right. in this direction. So we will be obsessing about Charlottesville forever for the entirety of Donald Trump's the presidency while people will forget that there isn't even a person named Stephen Scalise, let alone that he can, can walk properly.
0: Can you nail that down for me? Are you, are you saying in this particular political and media climate, when things happen, violent acts that are in some way related to ideas or persons or movements on the left, that those things are less likely to be scrutinized in the way that we would scrutinize, say, some kind of act of violence that is indirectly somehow or another correlated with— Well,
2: they're less likely to be scrutinized by the credentialed media— Okay. But the, the, a lot of the story of, uh, look, the big story of everything that's going on now is the devolution of power, right? And uh, it starts with the devolution of state power. Concentrations of power are breaking down. So when you talk about, uh, you know, the, that the media treats left-wing violence differently than it does right-wing violence, that's true about the credentialed media. Absolutely. Okay. Right. The baseball field incident is treated as a sort of anomaly. It's quickly you know, that there's some high toned moralizing and then it's forgotten about. It's it's it doesn't become a kind of legacy of
0: it. There's been very I've seen very little coverage about the uh, police shootings in Kissimmee. So um, where there's a
2: lot more coverage, though, mm -hmm. is in the rapidly proliferating, decentralized media, sure. kind of YouTube media, the, you know, social media, media, <laughs> which is where the right, it's really where the alt-right sort of grew itself in a sense and where the alt-light also grew itself. And, uh, you know, we'll see what role Breitbart plays in all this now that Bannon's back there, but, um, you know that that's a story about the the difference between how the elite media plays things or the credentialed media plays things, um, and how the decentralized uncredentialed media plays things. But it's it doesn't mean because MSNBC and CNN aren't carrying those stories that they're not getting out to people, that they're not resonating, that mm-hmm. they're not having an effect. The reason why I kept harping on Antifa stuff is because I see the way <coughs> I follow all these you know, far right accounts and and some just kind of right wing nationalist accounts. And uh, I do it with the left, too. And I see the way like Antifa is like it is this massive recruitment effort around Antifa. Look, I, I view free speech, which I think will be something you guys might agree with as being, you know, the fundamental right. It's it's the right from which everything else is derived is freedom of conscience and freedom of expression Um, and And association uh, and association, Johnson, and this new resurgent idea of revolutionary truth, a truth that is beyond appeal, uh, a truth that is above redress, above recourse, is scary to me and is an awful, awful, you know, horrific, um, legacy of the past century that we ought never go back to that sort of idea. Um, and I see that happening and I don't think it's good at all. However, right the Antifa people who are pushing that sort of thing ought to be dealt with, with cold eyes soberly. It comes back to sort of the birther thing. Like let's, let's talk about the, what Antifa leaders actually push, um, but without suggesting that um, we need to designate them as a terrorist group and enact new counter terror laws to deal with them and arm militias and put them in the streets and suspend due process and, and work ourselves in a lather because of the great Antifa threat. You know, I think that that's that'll only make things worse is what I'm saying.
0: But do you feel differently about the the threat posed by Antifa and the way that we should contend with those, with people who espouse those ideas or join in that movement and people who joined the alt-right broadly, um, and in particular, the people who joined the alt-right who were flirting with these sort of toxic memes. Like, are are those things sort of
2: categorically different? In, Not, in important uh, ways? Methodologically, I would say no, in terms of what the response <laughs> to them ought to be. right? I think that the kind of overheated like condemnation to the alt-right was, um, counterproductive in the same way that the, when it swung to the other extreme and there were these sorts of, you know, like profiles of Richard Spencer that were sort of, uh, quasi-erotic, where it were was also bad. <laughs> no, you want to have a cold eye. By the way, like I, I've not always got this right. I'm not saying um, that I'm the model of this. I know that I've screwed this up. I'm just saying I've learned from my own mistakes. I think a cold eye towards it and a degree of honesty with it, I don't think Antifa and the alt-right are the same. Nor do I want to sit here and like expound in a way where I beat my chest about how they're not equivalent. Mm -hmm. Um, I think you can figure out for yourself what the differences are. But I think both of them ought to be dealt with in a way that considers them for what they say. I want to take them seriously for what they say. Look at their ability to reach people and influence people and then try and deal with
0: that honestly. But that last point seems like the the one where we have the the most difficulty. I mean, it is certainly clear that they can get headlines, uh, and part of that is because there are these extreme extremist elements of both contingents, broadly speaking, that are willing to get involved in acts of violence, to have these street fights and to to use like really charged language. And that's the stuff that, that garners the headlines. It's not clear to me how that translates into political firepower. Perhaps those characterizations of the entire movement, either one as being just incredibly powerful and influential, um, and two universally contemptible that those narratives about how bad they are and about how influential they are, are probably more useful for the opponents of those movements. I'm just, I'm not sure that there is actually enough upside. And this is part of the reason why I've always been skeptical of the narratives around dog whistles and stuff. I'm not sure there's enough upside in Being soft on Richard Spencer, if you're Donald Trump, to actually justify. The co- the way that we often talk about not we us in this room but the way people often talk about Richard Spencer because I just don't think he's that influential I don't think that yeah, many people proof are actually is that Trump was listening. Soft on him, right? Well, him. I mean, what's the this, this sort of works in reverse? But this this is just it. Is. But this is just it. Like the the assertion is yeah. that Trump is soft on him. There's a way that we represent Trump's actions and words. A way that we can focus narrowly on a particular phrase that's used or a particular set of words that folks say ought to have been used that weren't used. And I keep returning to like that Charlottesville speech. Um, In the past, we've had conversations about that CNN interview that he gave about David Duke. And it's it really is one of those things where it sort of becomes lore. Like if I if I told you that the words that he said, where we condemn in the strongest possible terms, this egregious display of hatred, bigotry and violence um, that on many sides, on many sides, uh, that's been going on for a very long time in our country, not Donald Trump, not Barack Obama. Um, it has no place in America. And in the same speech, he says, above all else, we must remember this truth, no matter what our color or creed, religion or po- po- political party, we are all Americans first. The fact that someone can extract from that, oh my God, that's a dog whistle telling racists that it's okay to be racist and he's with them. Like, I suppose that's possible. One could reach that conclusion. That's one interpretation. It hardly seems like the most reasonable interpretation for someone to reach when they're dealing with someone who who shows up at the African-American History Museum and pals around with Amorosa. Like the assertions of the
1: next day that's uh, like, why are these people bitching about black on black crime in Detroit?
0: That retort isn't racist. Like, it's not, right?
1: Did you see Matt over here saying, No, no,
0: I I, I didn't say that. I'm not accusing you of anything. What I'm saying is, what I'm saying is that... There's a lack of sophistication in the way that he talks about issues in the way most people talk about issues the the standard conservative response to Black Lives Matter is, well, if Black Lives Matter, why aren't you talking about black on black crime? This is it is a stupid, inane response. You're not addressing what they're talking about at all. Deal with them on the facts. I I would, of course, assert that that's probably what one ought to do. But I think what's what ends up happening here is any inelegance. Right. Any sort of crudeness of speech, anything that seems at all evasive has all taken on the property of further evidence of the sort of secret racist agenda the secret Real, racist. I'm, I'm very narrative.
1: very I'm I'm very sorry that you're outnumbered on this and I want to feel me, your pain. It's
0: not a matter of me being outnumbered. I really when I say information cascade like that is what I'm talking about. No one doesn't people even look at the to same stuff. The rest
1: of the evidence. People looked at the same stuff you did uh-huh. and came with a different conclusion, including me. I, and it, I, I it doesn't you. mean that we're all trying to fucking virtue signal. I didn't it say It doesn't mean say that we think that way. he's dog whistling a word that I I've never said in my life. It no, not me. Not you, Matt. But this know, is. but, but, this, but, this, but, is like, a, but this is something that they're trying to puzzle we've... over. This reaction that people have had. People had a reaction. They looked at the same stuff and had a different reaction. Yeah, it just they just did. They just did.
0: I'm not sure. I'm, I'm sorry. Not sure sorry the,
1: I can't make you. I'm not sure where the disconnect. It. I'm
0: not sure where the disconnect is. People have made claims about Donald Trump sure. and dog whistles. Yes or no? We're, I'm not interested in that. Oh, oh, well, I am. This is a media criticism podcast. Yeah. We talk
1: about the way people cover these stories. The reaction against Donald Trump's. Zigzagging reactions to
2: Charlottesville wasn't a bunch of people I think that's pretending to hear dog whistle. The fact that there was this real substantive break between the one speech
0: and gentlemen, the speech, gentlemen. I only read you excerpts you. from the same yeah. speech just a moment. No, I ago, understand, right? No, but we're so, and, and even and even still, like the zigzag, that is an interpretation, right? Like, it's an interpretation. Oh, it totally is. Okay. All like, right. This is, and like this is one that 95% and this is, of people share. It doesn't matter to me that 95%. <laughs> okay. It, it's not about the quantity of people who and believe this thing. It's about the substance Foucault of the evidence. Wisconsin- so Wisconsin modern. Modern. So we're
1: just going to put them aside for this. All All like, text.
0: well Yes. I, I don't believe in that for a moment. Yeah. The, the fact, the fact that I've been trying to bring to bear here and it's, I suppose there's just the general frustration with my, Interest in advancing my heretical perspective on this. It's not that I'm trying to convince you, but I can't really engage in these conversations if. One of the fundamental things that both for people in the room and for people listening, there were tens of thousands of them. There might be five thousand or two hundred now. I'm trying to provide sufficient, sufficient context, sufficient context for them to understand where on earth I'm coming from and in many cases they either haven't heard me articulate my weird perspective before um or perhaps didn't quite understand it so i try to put it into context again yes, I think and in some cases i try to do it quickly right,
2: actually on the last episode and let me just get this in <coughs> since he's not here um happy birthday yes i listened to probably the first half of the last episode and I- I just want to say there's no need for Moynihan to thank me um, for the fact that he's basically come around to my perspective on all the things that he attempted to pillory me for for the first time. You only heard a third of
0: the the podcast. I heard the third where he
2: had adopted uh, my position on Richard Spencer and a number of other things, but... um, Thought leader is the title I like to use for myself. No. Uh, it's on my business <laughs> card. It says thought leader. Thought but leader. no, he had a good Geraldine point. Um, yeah, Jillian Siegel, thought, thought leader. <laughs> he had a good point, which is um, often, you know, people make too much of, I think, the presidential response to this sort of thing in terms of the impact it can have. But this is exactly the sort of event where if you leave kind of close textual interpretation aside for a second, I, I think some of what I, I believe was the failure of Trump's response, the moral failure of Trump's response, is that this is one of those instances uh, when one American, for ideological reasons, kills another American on the street. But what, which he didn't know at that time. Um, but he knew it the next time he spoke. Um, and, and he
0: did. And he did address all of those things the next time he spoke.
2: And I, I think that, uh, you know, he knew it when he said fine people. Yeah,
1: yeah that's right.
0: I, I think that's what he said was there were fine people on both sides. There were also reprehensible people on both sides. I, I'm not w- saying that that's the said, fine uh, people. This is, uh, right. Look, he, you know <laughs> I, what? I, I, all right. Listen, this is this I, is, I the so this is friend, the as, litigate as this I said time. last week, as I said last week, I think that was Perhaps the most offensive um, thing that he said. In, that was pretty bad, man. But but here's here's, <laughs> where mean, I, here's, where I'll take here's where I'll take it. Here's what I'll take it, here's I'll take it even <laughs> further, right? That there is there's a part of me, there's a part of me that is willing to that is willing to give a bit more grace to the wacky kid who finds himself like attracted to Richard Spencer's ideas. Because even that kid I'm willing to engage and try to try to talk to about things. I don't know that there wasn't some kid who showed up on Saturday for the festivities that day. Who didn't participate in the blood and soil March. And it is, and is, and is an identitarian okay. um, per the discussion that we had last week, which you didn't hear because you only listened to a third of the podcast, which is offensive you said half. Um, um,
2: you're making the identitarian neo-Nazi distinction? I mean, I'm familiar with uh, well, the way they would make that distinction.
0: Well, I, I did make that last week. You have to go listen to the damn podcast. I think there's the way, one there. to
2: be made there, right? yeah. I mean, I think, you know, increasingly <laughs> it's, uh, it's often a meaningless distinction based on how people form their alliances these days. Sometimes it's not, you know? Um, in the wake of Charlottesville, actually, some of the people who'd been identitarians, if you look at, like, the far-right message boards, you know, there was a hue and cry about the unbelievable believable, uh, stupidity of holding a, a march in the streets of an American city with a, a swastika flag and about how, um, the murder of this woman, Heather Heyer was going to play very badly for their politics and how this set them back. So there was some reflection about it in tactical terms. Um, but, uh, That kid who you're talking about, who's attracted to Spencer for whatever reasons, I I don't see how he's done any favors by the president, basically um, suggesting that he he might be among the fine people. And that is, you know, if what you're saying is that he can be reached, isn't that a moment for moral clarity then, or at least for rhetorical clarity?
0: but But that's precisely what I'm saying. Like when you say rhetorical clarity, I think stating explicitly that. There's no place for race for bigotry. Mm-hmm. We're all Americans first. Like is that not clarity? Is that a clear statement or not? Nah? Like, how can one both be signaling their support and affection and fealty for Nazis and saying that twice? He's not the most I, elegant sorry, who, spokesperson. Who, who is on that earth. That he
1: was signaling his support for Nazis. I, I forgot who, this. This is who, 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 who is that person? This is that Donald Trump guy. No, no. But who was suggesting here that he was signaling support for Nazis?
0: How can one be soft peddling their criticism? Deliberately or not, I guess we don't know. D- does anyone think he was soft pedaling it deliberately in yeah, the room? No, I, okay, so Jacob, it, so he yeah. thinks he was soft pedaling deliberately. So then here we are. I read. Uh, I, why was he soft pedaling it deliberately?
2: Because I think he didn't want to alienate a certain part of his base that he's got a kind of intuitive, instinctual connection to, and he realized that if he came down too hard entirely on one side, it would seem like he was capitulating to the corrupt elite media and uh that he had been bought off by the narrative by the way i know this is a media criticism show but i think that like this cycle of media criticism is tremendously damaging to the country so i'm not blaming we the fifth which i like and listen which, to which cycle of mediocrism i think the way in which um we get trapped inside of these sort of call and response um reactions to events where, um, we're, we're escalating the moral stakes of the event and it becomes this sort of hall of mirrors. So, uh, you know, there's this, this one side that views, uh, any interpretation of events from the elite fake news media as being automatically not only false, but It's quasi conspiratorial, like meant to push a globalist agenda. Mm -hmm. And then the other side, right, views anything the president says as being, uh, you know, either latently Nazi or, you know, sort of Putinist gesturing. And it's this um, it's this escalating, accelerating uh, sort of distrust and this, this chaos effect. Look, if you're going to take the segue for a second, if you're going to take the Russia stuff um, seriously, which I do, um, it's not the idea that Donald Trump is involved in some grand conspiracy uh, where, you know, he had secret moves, always absurd. And the Democrats, I mean, just look ridiculous pursuing some of this stuff, in my opinion. But the Russian, first of all, did some Trump people have, uh, you know, what may be illegal connections to the Russians through f- financial stuff or whatever else? Uh, yeah, uh, maybe. But the the real thing that's going on, right, is a kind of turning up the signal on disorder and on uh, distrust and kind of increasing the noise to signal ratio, turning up the noise. And you see that in the way that Russia uh, signal boosts both the far left and the alt right, so this idea that they have sort of picked the horse that they're pushing—that Putin is backing this—you know, far right uh, kind of revanchist movement globally—I don't think is true. I think what is happening, and Putin's not the only one doing it. I mean, we play a similar game; other countries play a similar game. But what you're seeing is this increase of disorder, and the media. And this cycle of media criticism where every event is, is immediately weaponized and becomes every event becomes a site of ideological battle is part of this. And social media is intensely damaging in, in terms of how it, it, uh, kind of provides not only a site, but a, an arena that conduces to this. And that's what's happened with a lot of these events. And what this gets to is that we're not heading towards civil war. Jesse Walker had a good piece in the LA Times mm-hmm. making that point. So Don,
0: Don Lemon, who asserted this recently. Yeah, I think that's yeah.
2: ridiculous. I, I think that civil war would suggest that, suggest that there are these kind of two big coherent camps, right? Something at least approaching that. I do think there's a kind of Multipolar conflict and an increasing disorder. Um, that that doesn't mean that the country is going to break down overnight, um, but that that doesn't look. It's it's not a, a good picture for our future. The way in which there uh, there's this kind of multipolar conflict where the state state's concentration of power and I know this appeals to some people um, is breaking down. Gesturing with his hands towards right. Him. Go on. <laughs> and, and by the way, I think I think the federal government has too much power, especially since it can't do basic things right. Mm-hmm. It probably doesn't need this much power when it can't fulfill its basic duties. But-
0: well, also because because dangerously. Inept people can get elected to high Absolutely. office and
2: then end up in charge. Of this is bank. why I don't like this idea of let's just it's great that we have a triumvirate of generals coming in. Right. <laughs> like I, I don't buy that for a second because once you normalize that, how do you know what general is going to be there tomorrow? You yeah. like the general. Yeah, today. What, what if he brings Flynn back? I want uh-huh.
1: uh, 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 to uh I want to just be back or, you know, to give you reinforcement on what you just said about the part about him blaming
0: this podcast <laughs> for being part of the cycle yes of yep. degrading America. Mostly, Camille. Yeah,
1: um, but but actually, which you know is, mostly which is which him, is totally wrong he I do not show know his that, birthday. Do you know what I did on, on my birthday? Uh-huh. Which just passed, by the uh-huh. way, and I, don't, I I don't remember my sheet cake. Uh, <laughs> I bought it from the same place I bought the one that's right here for Michael Moynihan. That's all fine. Uh, yeah. uh, no, it's not about the, the, this podcast, but but the, there's this uh, uh, I would say decade long flirtation uh, among the media of wanting to like call a spade a spade quicker right? Which from that point of view, um, and, and what I'm trying to think of the term of art that I'm sure Jay Rosen, uh, coined and I like Jay a lot. Uh, but it's like, you know, the traditional attempt to pretend to be fair is over with now. And so we need to call these lying liars, Mm. the liars that they are. And by liars, they mean, um, a the liars but also B the republicans right like almost immediately there and um without a real strong sense that 90 to 95 percent probably and uh, uh, i don't think that uh, you uh Jojo would would uh, would disagree with me, and I I, I got to come up with like at least fifteen before we're done tonight. Um, uh, but like you know, the vast majority of people in the mainstream media are tilt left or vote Democrat in some way, or like or, or like that. So when you <coughs> Decide the gloves are off in the same way that Donald Trump's gloves, uh, you know, or or the United States Army's gloves are allegedly off now in Afghanistan, uh, which is something that he's excited about. Lindsey Graham, even worse, is excited about now uh, there. Um, uh, We're going to call these lying liars the liars that they are, but the people who are doing them are – kind of removing their cloaks of objectivity or
0: <laughs> resumed cloaks veneer, of objectivity. Veneer of objectivity.
1: Uh, Veneer. That's a, a better way of looking mm-hmm. at it. And they're going to go out there uh quicker because they're, you know, and, and also Trump is in his Phoenix rally was, you know, he spent the first 40 minutes um, as Matt Tybee, I think, pointed out very well. And, and uh, from Rolling Stone, like it was like a kind of Lenny Bruce act. He was just sitting there reading his, his past work right. and then like uh criticizing people of it. As if, some
0: reports that uh, folks in the audience were getting kind of fed up and just sort of walking out and it's hot. Around.
1: You know what? I think Who those were exaggerated. Well, late it's hot.
2: Lenny Bruce is pretty boring. right? Lenny <laughs>
1: Bruce is boring. He's yeah. reading from his court cases and stuff. Uh, if Phoenix is hot. It's like 107 yeah. degrees and, and they've confiscated your water. So I don't, uh, I, I, it's not, it doesn't, whatever. Mm-hmm. But uh, journalism, mainstream journalism is almost willingly allowing themselves to be weaponized in the culture war right now. Mm-hmm. That doesn't make it better. Right. It just doesn't. And, and I, I don't think. think. And I, I
0: think, I think that's to the extent I'm pushing back, right. That's what I'm doing. I don't have any affection for Donald Trump. Uh, quite just the contrary. A bit, just quite a little, quite little the contrary. Sexual. No, it to the extent I have any affection for him. It's because I still hold out hope that somewhere along the line, people will recognize that it's not merely the man that there are some institutional deficiencies here that ought to be addressed um, and you mentioned Afghanistan and Trump's Afghanistan speech um, and one of the things that I find so remarkable about the Trump Trump's pivot on Afghanistan is just how similar what is being proposed now is to what we've actually seen over the course of the previous two administrations in terms of our Afghanistan policy. And I mean, this is a war that we, we may actually see two decades worth of American service persons like fighting fighting and we ain't there yet. I hope it's not true, but I suspect you're right.
1: Appreciate your optimism,
0: um, because this is this is this is awful. It is a continuation of policy from two previous from two administrations. The Obama administration is one of those administrations who have taken that original authorization for the use of military force, the same one that we got after <laughs> September 11th, and interpreted it in these increasingly expansive ways. The Obama administration that. Actually did have a, a toothless um, assertion that it made um, to Congress when it went and said, well, yeah, yeah, let's get a let's get an authorization for use of military force. The Libya intervention that we want to do, but we're not going to get rid of that old one from 2001. We want to keep that one around because we need to have the free hand to define who the bad actors are so we can go out and do it, do things even now with the AUMF conversation that seems to be going on, the volume of that particular conversation is so low relative to the hysteria that I've seen. And I, I have to use that word because it seems appropriate, but to the hysteria related to the Russia investigation, related to the latest like Twitter outrage, related to even like the ongoing protests related to the, um, the statues, etc., that it is It is actually a little terrifying to me like this matters. It matters that the president of the United States is talking about dispatching private security forces to Afghanistan
1: that got cashiered that.
0: Yeah. Although at this point, the, the truth is that the president is still doing his, well, I'm not going to tell you. Um, so I think we'll, we'll find out eventually what his real plans are, but he's, he's not going to tell us about it. And he doesn't really have to, cause he doesn't have to ask anyone for permission. Apparently he doesn't need authorization to do this. That's, um, that's actually true. Yeah. So, but, but we don't know how many thousands of additional U S service persons will be placed into the field. This administration for all of the things about it that are, Truly unprecedented um, Is In a lot of ways Fairly pedestrian okay,
2: I mean, If there's a lesson from Afghanistan It's that uh, you know you don't drain the swamp The swamp drains you But um, Who? Look I was in Afghanistan in 2012 And The fuck were you doing there man? I was In the army in Afghanistan I was deployed to Afghanistan um, In 2012 And My best friend, who was one of my sergeants in Iraq when I was in Iraq in 2006, 2007, is in Afghanistan now as an aid worker Um, this time, actually. Um, Brian, I love you, man. Um, Dude flew back from Afghanistan for my wedding for a weekend. He came back carrying a beautiful Afghan rug for two days to come to my wedding. When I tell you this is a good guy, I mean, this is a good guy, but, um, ah, yeah, I was in Afghanistan in 2012. And, uh, what I see going on, um, in, in Afghanistan now with Trump's policy is a kind of stuckness that suggests to me a really basic foundational um, breakdown in the system of um, decision-making and, and kind of decision execution. You have the president saying his instincts went the other way. Mm-hmm. You have now popular opinion supporting a withdrawal from Afghanistan. Um, look, the, the idea that, um, we're going to keep some counterterrorism forces in Afghanistan. And, uh, also the idea that we're, uh, we're not going to have a timeline for Afghanistan. I'm actually all right with both of those things. If there was transparency about what they're doing there, right? So the Obama timelines, uh, were self-defeating in some ways. Um, you know, they, they, they weren't necessarily, uh, th- they weren't helpful. It wasn't helpful, not just because there was a kind of big picture timeline, but because it was so obvious to the Afghans, both to the security forces we were supposed to be training and to the Taliban that it made more sense to wait us out. And, you know, I was with uh, a battalion, you know, I was with, a. Uh, uh, just a regular infantry battalion in 2012. And we were training mostly Afghan police forces and, and they knew national police force, and they knew that we were leaving soon. And why, if you're an Afghan, right, living in Afghanistan, you know, why would you base, uh, like your sense of the future on these guys who were here for five months instead of the the bedrock conditions in the country that you're going to spend the rest of your life in and that your children are going to spend the rest of their life in. Um, so I, I don't think that, you know, the timelines of that sort are necessary in a military operation. What is necessary is a clear clear statement of what we're doing there. And if what we're doing there is trying to create a central government in Kabul that's legitimate and that can extend its power outside of the cities into the countryside, then we are wasting... More than just our time, we're wasting people's lives, we're wasting, you know, vast sums of money, obviously, because that's not going to happen. Afghanistan has always been strong at the periphery and weak at the core, Mm. and it'll continue to be that. And the Afghans have a say in what their future is going to look like. And uh, so anyway, I I mean, I don't don't know how to kind of wrap this up neatly. It's intensely... You know, it's intensely depressing to me to see the way in which faced with a kind of manifest failure and popular will to kind of break contact with that manifest failure, the manifest failure being based in part on these... Utterly deluded goals, right? Like the these state building and governance building projects in Afghanistan have not worked, you know. And insofar as they have worked, they've worked about as much as they're going to under the terms that we have pursued them, right? Because you know th- this idea that I've developed and that I've tried to put into words is that we're too much of an imperial power to break away. Right. We're too much of an empire to break away from something like this. We're not enough of an imperial power to fully commit to it. Just go for it. Go for it. Because if if Trump had come out and said, look, I'm sending 50,000 soldiers in as a garrison force. All right. I'm sending State Department and and, and private contractors in and their families are going with them. And we're going to garrison Afghanistan. And now we're going to pursue a rural strategy. I would think this is a terrible idea. (laughs) but at least it's not the same terrible idea yeah at least it's not committing to an obviously unworkable policy and it's the committing again and again to the obviously unworkable policy. I think in part just because as long as you're still losing, you're not the guy who lost and the generals (laughs) feel that way. And to some extent the president feels that way. You know, if you just push it down the line a little bit, you're not the guy who lost. There's no rooftop Saigon images, um, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. What I, to I say, want but. to.
1: I don't want to take advantage of your service and of your uh, emotional connection to it too much, but just at least, nah, a, go for at least a little bit uh, here. In that, my flip feeling as someone who, who, at this point in my life, my family isn't military. I would, I didn't register for the fucking draft. That's how much of a fucking hippie I am. Um, but um, my instinct is that we don't want to admit as a kind of mid a fake empire or whatever like a like an insincere empire um in your formulation maybe um we don't want to admit the fallacy of sunken costs because the sunken costs are our brothers and sisters who died and that sucks and twice as many of them died under obama as did under george w bush we don't want to admit that We either should have gotten out in December of 2001 or whenever like the thing was wrapped um, or that we don't have enough uh, omnipotence to secure a certain level of peace, victory, make sure the bad guys don't have the power kind of thing. So your testimony in this and as addressing that kind of point has some power because you're not a general you're not someone who does who's as focused uh with the imagery of the helicopter on the roof um as someone who served very faithfully in a late stage although not the latest stage of afghanistan what do you say to those people who I think, or what do you say to me if, if, if I'm wrong about this, about the notion of sunk costs that they're just afraid to admit that the mission's been kind of creepy or creeping for the last 14 years, and we just can't admit it, and because we can't admit it, we can't make the right decision in this case.
2: I'd say you're lying, and uh, that it's <clears throat> who's lying? Not me, certainly. No, not you, but uh, the the people who would say that, you know, we've lost too many lives to admit that it's that it's a lost cause at this point. Um, You know, I I don't think that's honest. I think that uh, it's that the, the cost to continue it to most people is fairly low. Um, I don't think it's the sense that the sacrifice has been too great. I think most people are utterly disconnected from that sacrifice. So Mm -hmm. the idea that it weighs on them is... I don't buy it for a second. But then, like, how do you feel about the generals? I mean, this is an the, administration well, the that's different. filled
1: with that's generals and brass, story. right? That's and a different story. They influence Trump here. Trump sure. campaigned and even presidented as someone who said, why the why the hell are we still there 16 years later? Which is, to my mind, and admittedly, I'm a bit more of a peacenik than the average American on this case maybe maybe i'm not um to my mind that's the question why the hell are we still there i'm not sure there's a good answer for that and yet he was he talked to all of his generals and people with brass and he admitted that it was a reversal of uh, what he had previously thought and decided to do this so what do you say to those people who advised him what the hell are they thinking about in this case i would say that and what very, are their incentives
2: the very least that you owe right he's uh the very least that you owe is a clear statement of what we're doing there, what we're trying to accomplish at this point.
0: Yeah, good luck with that.
2: And that if you can't provide that, um, then it, it ought to be clear to you that uh, that whatever uh, whatever reason you're there for, um, it, it's not worth it. It's not worth the cost. I mean, I I think that. <laughs> I think that when you surround yourself with generals the way Trump has, it's not surprising that you would um, be kind of, you know, taken over by that logic. And mm-hmm. I think somebody like McMaster thinks that, you know, he the, the Afghan war was kind of uh, sabotaged by the timelines. And look, like I just said, I don't think that the Obama timelines were a good idea. I do think a clear end state is a good idea. Like
1: like, and, like imagining what it would look like yes, as opposed to defining a date that, on it. Yeah.
2: Defining that in terms that are practicable and achievable.
0: Right. As right? opposed to just, we will destroy the terrorists. We will fight them until they can fight no longer. Look, it, we'll
2: eviscerate them. The, the reason why uh you know the the Taliban is resurgent in Afghanistan in part is because um you know Kabul's got not much to do uh with the Pashtun south you know the 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 situation in Afghanistan is almost impossible to appreciate if you haven't seen the physical landscape of the country which laughs in the face of the kind of centralized interconnected nation state that we're accustomed to and that we think in terms of when we frame these things and by laughs i shouldn't say laughs that would that would suggest a kind of recognition it 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 echoes into you know, these valleys. I mean, Afghanistan is a patchwork of villages, some of which are connected by these very old tribal and kinship affiliations and are connected by patronage networks. Mm -hmm. But the, the reason why, uh, we can't get Kabul to effectively govern, um, you know, the, the rural provinces in the Pashtun Southeast is not because we haven't tried hard enough or been committed enough or been earnest enough about nation building. It's because the country and the Afghans defy that. And we ought to, you know, I would say to those generals, uh, know, I would just say to them, it's, it's enough. All of the detail that you just provided
0: for why A particular end state might be an impractical goal, I think, is important and useful for people to reckon with. But there's something else, right? There's this abstract notion of the threat that is posed to the United States by terrorists who are using Afghanistan as a base of operations, or at least would were the United States to leave, the sensibility that one They're using one it gets, now, though. Right? Well, this is—I mean, this, this is this, this is, is precisely it, right? So my thing is the the notion that what we've been sold is if we aren't prosecuting this particular war, like that would be a grave threat to the United States and to the stability of this particular region. And it might, and be, that, and that might, might be, be true, but it's not necessarily obvious to me that that's true and it's right. certainly not necessarily obvious to me that it's going to be less dangerous than it is now that the possibility the is, of right. escalation and and if not escalation at least ex- protracting this conflict out for another five ten fifteen
2: years i think there is a I just don't know what that means in afghanistan i think uh you know the the Al-Qaeda establishing uh, bases of operations and training camps uh, constitutes a legitimate threat to national security and the national interest. And I think there's a counter-terror mission in Afghanistan. I also think that some advisors, some kind of force protection for Kabul, so it makes it at least more difficult for the Taliban to overrun it, and buys them some time. You know, hopefully the Taliban doesn't overrun Kabul. I'd be fine with that. What I have a problem with is this... Um, dangerous diluted attachment to the training of foreign armies to serve as proxies for our own interest. If you have to spend 16 years training another army (laughs) to carry out your interests, maybe you ought to realize that um, they don't want to do it, that the interests diverge. Um, You know, not that they're incapable of it, that they might be incapable of doing it the way you want them to do it. But, you know, that's the real problem. And this insistence on... um, we're going to stabilize this space in a sort of stability that we're comfortable with. You know, if we were to pursue our national security interests more narrowly in Afghanistan, um, it would cause other people some problems, you know, in that region. And they would have to, um, they would have to try and fill some of those gaps. The attachment to it at this point, I I think really does have something to do with the generals feeling like we haven't been given a shot to get this right, but there's nothing to fucking get right anymore. You know?
1: This has been a great conversation and, uh, and, and thank you, John, John, um,
2: for <laughs> little John, L I L apostrophe, John, you
0: know, little John, little,
2: little Johnny, Lil. <laughs>
1: uh, but just quickly like to cross examine you, um, in case Lindsey Graham ever comes up in front of my face again, sure. if we're not finding them and uh, fighting them in Kandahar, does that mean we're going to fight them in Kansas city?
2: uh no no it does not
1: yeah okay thank you um uh, i just was a fact check that uh, that comes up uh, sometime um no uh, last week i had mentioned kind of in passing towards the end mostly as a way to talk about my uh stupid european vacation um about how that there was a conflict in the planet libertarian over the phrase blood and soil um Not just as it applied in Charlottesville, where people were chanting... By people, I mean neo Nazis uh, chanting uh, "blood and soil" um, as they were doing their Tiki torch polo shirt thing. But also that uh, two three weeks prior, um, the head of the Mises Institute, Jeff Deist, and I'm sorry that I'm probably mispronouncing his name. Uh, don't know him, and I don't say that as a as a diss. I just uh, I don't expect him to know me either. Um, um, no, I, I no don't. beef like a libertarian beef. No, I I, I honestly mean this. I. Yeah. I I knew from vacation that people were arguing about the phrase blood and soil because Jeff Deist had mentioned this (coughs) in a speech. And a couple of of, uh, dedicated fifth column listeners had uh, 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 written in um, kind of anxiously saying that I had uh, misportrayed um, Jeff's speech. I want to um, maybe even read a little bit. Zach Chafee. Chaffee. Chaffee, I think even if it's two Fs.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: If it's uh, two Fs, I would Fs, go
2: Chaffy with two Fs.
1: Actually. Honestly, two Fs. That's just, that's, that's a Chaffee. Yeah. I mean, oh. even, even if they're like like uh, claiming that it's Chaffy, could be Chaffee, like that. You know, Chaffy. You need the accent on that uh, first E to really uh, to, to to make it. Um, but he was saying that I was. Misportraying. And if I did, I'm sorry. I, I, I meant to just uh, kind of like portray it as I knew that libertarians were fighting in the universe over the phrase blood and soil based on a speech. By Jeff yes from the Mises Institute. I've since read the speech and there's a lot of different uh, fights that are occurring right now uh, in that in the kind of libertarian space. And a lot of this overlaps the alt right. There's a number of stories. I referenced one earlier from Dave Weigel from today as we tape, which is August 24th about the alt-right and, uh, and whatever overlap that they might have with, with uh, libertarians. Matt Lewis had a piece of the Daily Beast where Nick Gillespie and a yeah. bunch of people uh, were quoted. And I can tell just by uh, 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 Jolene over here um, um, uh, getting all uh, rigid talking about it. They want to talk about it and we might not have enough time to do it. Um, it is a super interesting. Go and read the actual speech. Uh, which you can find at the Mises Institute. I have a lot of objections to it. Um, he does include the the phrase blood and soil towards the end, mostly in the spirit of, hey, look, if libertarians want to um, pretend they live in a world in which blood and soil and God and community doesn't exist, then they're deluding themselves. There's a bunch of other stuff that's, that, to my mind, is more wrong with that. Moynihan's not here, so I won't... Um, talk about the propriety or the alleged lack thereof propriety of using the phrase blood and soil in July oh, 20 20-
2: fascist term, 2017. I mean, fascist it
1: has, it has a pedigree, which we talked about in the last, uh, last episode, but really I, I don't want to like True. Uh, debate on it. I think that the, as you go and read it, the uh, the biggest problems with the speech um, mm-hmm. and the discussion has more to do with the straw man that he's erecting of people that he doesn't name, um, but it definitely- He does the, mention reason. Does he mention reason? Oh, yeah. 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 Maybe I, I speed read, yeah. uh, but uh, part of the problems with, with peace is that he's- uh, There are, uh, you know, chasms and splits within libertarianism. Uh, Brian Doherty wrote a piece uh, called The Tale of Two Libertarianisms, I think, in uh, 2010, that kind of Austrian school, Chicago school. For you total insiders, you can get in there and have fun with it. Um, uh, It's (laughs) It's so much fun. It's so (laughs) much fun. I can't even begin to tell you. but the way that it, in which this particular speech talks about um, <coughs> the so-called goals of people like me, um, uh, that we uh, want to denigrate religion and communities and social groups and all this kind of stuff is a, is a gross misreading of where I think ninety nine percent of libertarians I've ever met have come from and. Um, And that to me was was somehow more striking even than the blood and soil flourish that happens at the end of the speech. But go check it out yourself at uh, Mises.org, I believe it is. And let me uh, just uh, check that uh, yourself Mm -hmm. Um, for a new libertarian for a new libertarian in which he's he is uh, saying that, you know, our existing libertarians are insufficient because they're too adhered to kind of a a globalist uh, transnationalist uh, uh, sense. Um, There are a lot of fault lines and they are. They are spreading uh, rapidly as we speak. And by the time that people listen to this, and I want to shout out before we we close this out, uh, our friends in Texas, because they're going to get hammered over the next 36 hours. (coughs) Sorry, by like super intense rainfall. There's going to be flooding. People are going to die. It's going to be bad. And and, uh, our hearts are out uh, with you in in listening to this. But go to the original text and all this. I did not mean to be this. Last week, a, you know, uh, an overall assessment of Jeff Dias or Mises or Ludwig von Mises Institute or LewRockwell.com, anything. I just was uh, I happened to be in the part of the world, the Rhineland, where blood and soil came from. And I meant to talk about how weird that was to be seeing libertarian friends or colleagues squabbling amongst one another over the term blood and soil as I was in literally the land of blood and soil. And generally speaking... And I think that that a close reading and a good reading of this speech uh, and, and, uh, you know, essay or transcript of it uh, will bear out my interpretation, uh, although others will differ, that the more that you attach the term blood and soil to libertarianism, the less that you're going to end up in a libertarian place. But that might be discussion for another episode
2: on the libertarian thing, libertarian to (coughs) alt-right pipeline. Real quick, since I've done some libertarian punching on this show, um, look, I I, um, I I think that there are all these different strains and factions within libertarianism, right? And one of them, though, was this kind of—I've seen people talk about it as uh, traditionalist libertarianism or uh, reactionary libertarianism—is a phrase I've heard before. Um, and there was like this sort of Uncle Ron crowd, uh, particularly among young people who came to view ethno-nationalism as the bedrock of libertarianism first. And that was the, so the the kind of migration was they got interested in politics through Ron Paul and this sort of cult of like Uncle Ron. And then they got into this idea of, well, libertarianism is great, but it only works in a, a monolithic ethnic community. So you can't practice libertarianism in a multi ethnic democracy. It only works in a monoculture.
0: There, there may be there may be some small minority of uh, Ron Paul fans yeah, who, I'm not, who got uh, there. The, the point of this was but to yeah. not tar libertarianism and <laughs> yeah. to say
2: that this was a small community. Yeah. That uh, because I I watched some of this happen that didn't represent the mainstream Mm -hmm. of libertarianism at all. And the same people, like it it would be the same as saying that Occupy, there's an Occupy to alt-right pipeline. Now, there are a number of former Occupy people who are involved in the alt-right now. And it's an interesting thing to look at, but it doesn't mean that there's an ideological, like, uh, uh, you know directionality that propels somebody from the one to the other some of this has to do with you know uh, ideological movements that are outside of the center. The mainstream
0: yeah people, always people who have, are willing to strike sure, out those those sure. weird positions Michael, and hold
1: them uh, Michael Brennan Doherty had a great piece in the National Review uh, uh just today on this reacting to Matt Lewis's piece I think it was in the mm-hmm. Daily Beast hmm. um in which he just pointed out marginal people uh, are attracted to marginal movements True. and and sometimes it's a transitory thing and, yeah. I'm, and I really am not saying that as a value judgment the word marginal in that sense and his extended me- lead metaphor was him uh, talking about like taking the Latin mass as like mm. a, a dairy thing back you know 20 years ago and the kind of people that were attracted to that until the moment that that stopped being such a crazy thing to do and then suddenly the crazies aren't, aren't as interested in it and that's, and that's definitely part of it.
2: There's a- kind of the the quick thought about libertarianism and how it relates not on that point, because I think uh, that's a good one. I'll read Michael's piece is that there was this sort of cultural libertarian moment that was always sort of vague and indistinct. What do people mean by a cultural libertarian? And um, there is an important, I think, sort of conceptual thing to understand here though, which is the difference between mocking something to expose the hypocrisy in it and mocking it to suggest that it's based on a a, a fallacy to begin with. So the idea that, because there, I've seen a lot of people argue that like South Park conservatism was a, a, a sort of precursor of the alt-right. And I, I don't think that's true because the South Park conservative sensibility was if you are satirizing something based on its hypocrisy, you're reaffirming the principle that's being betrayed in the, hip, in the hypocrisy, right? So satire that goes after liberal hypocrisy, right, is actually... Is, is reaffirming that principle that's being portrayed in the Hypocrisy. Whereas the alt-right move is to say that the hypocrisy – so let's take, for example, the idea of fundamental equality between different peoples, right? Let's say racial groups. Now, South Park might mock the idea of that by showing liberals treating black people as kind of like sacred, uh, magical uh, black people, right? The idea in doing that – I'm assuming South Park did that at some point. They had to come up with a lot of ideas, but the idea in doing that. Right. The idea in doing that would be to say, look at you, people who are supposed to believe that we're all created equal, um, actually uh, going for this kind of, uh, you know, collective ascription of identity. That's not what the alt-right is doing, right? Because South Park in doing that is saying you're failing to treat them as individuals. The alt-right is saying, "No, no, 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 that's basically right. You know, their individual qualities are not what's most important. It's the racial group that's most important. And so I think that that distinction is important to keep in mind. And the people on Mm -hmm. the South Park conservative side of it who are mocking those that, that hypocrisy ought to keep in mind what it is they're mocking and who they make friends with and who they consider their allies, because some of the people who are mocking it along with you aren't mocking it for the same reasons right, you are. Necessarily. They're not.
0: They're not mocking it. They're, they are. Their interest is in, is in aping it. They want to create a version of it um, that is
1: all their own. Um, I just want to point cases, out before uh, Camille wraps that uh, the term South park conservatives was the name of a book by Brian Anderson from city journal, uh, swell guy. That's right, yeah. Uh, uh, and, um, South park guys themselves are not conservatives and libertarians, um, <coughs> small L. Um, but, uh, that I'm, I'm, a would in the book for some reason as a central Europe style, conservative liberal. It's always nice, which is actually the best description of me in yeah. history.
2: Yeah, it's pretty good. Hey, shout out to um, Ben Price on uh, mm. oh yeah Twitter my God. because huge fan. I like that guy. He's smart, vigorous. Keep doing what you do, kid. Well,
0: He's, I, I appreciate that he listens.
1: Um, uh, you should shout out uh, the person who like helped us drain this fucking bottle. <laughs>
0: hey, hey, damn beer! Could you tell Fisher who that person is?
1: Idaho whiskey here. <laughs> that would be Shelby Spencer. Shelby, Shelby Spencer. Spencer.
0: Thank you, Shelby Spencer. Who Small reached out batch to us on bourbon Facebook.
1: whiskey. We drained yeah, the this bottle thing. is done. Like we that is finished. This thing was killed within an hour. Yeah, we didn't even mess around. Like the the Jefferson was the Jefferson rum.
0: Uh, right? I thought you were going to talk about the Thomas Jefferson statue, which which mm. people no, upset about. Uh, like the, the, the cork yeah. was a nice touch. You could hear it being popped repeatedly well,
1: during the show. Up. That is a good Uh, aesthetically pleasing. The whole point of having big boom microphones, as (laughs) you should know, as a film director, Uh is that you get up close to it and you exaggerate your drinking noises. Yeah. And you cough into it. Um, Listen, I tried to. It's okay. It's fine. It's fine. He's very sensitive Um, today. Let's get out of here. Uh,
0: (laughs) Well, we're finished. I got an eight o'clock in the morning uh, flight to catch. It's 10 o'clock. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me. This was. Joe Joe Siegel, my God. Thanks for having me. What's really disappointing is that you guys are still wrong. Bye.
2: Peace.